18, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, what sweet words come to us here at the end of John 17. I pray that our own relationship with You would bear marks of the intimacy that is granted us through what Your Son has done on our behalf. Thank You for the wonderful gift of adoption and for the Holy Spirit who even intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I pray that there would be further transparency in our own relationship with You and in our prayer life And I pray that You would put desires in our hearts and minds that would glorify You. I pray we'd learn from Jesus' example, but even more than that, that we would be blessed by what He has done on our behalf. We thank You. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Should you uncover an ancient document that was written by someone that you highly admire and you were to discover that this individual had written something particularly for you, like before you were born, they were writing for you, wanting to express some sort of love or care for you or some piece of knowledge that they felt that you needed to be acquainted with. To read a prayer offered by a Christian who has gone on before us, in which they prayed for successive generations. It's moving and it's encouraging to think of men who have gone before us who love Jesus, who prayed for future generations. Well, here before us today, we have something like that, but something even greater. Here we have Jesus Himself praying for us. This is what makes the last seven verses of John 17 a particularly sweet comfort to us. 
While it's true that Jesus had particular men in mind while he was praying, and there were others that he specifically was excluding. Look at verse 9 again. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus says, I'm not praying for everyone here. I'm praying for those who are yours and you've given to me. So he had someone specifically in mind there as he's praying this. But what's so fascinating is the way that Jesus closes this prayer is that He indicates that these gifts from the Father to Him extend far beyond His present companions. It's not just the disciples that are there in His midst that Jesus is praying for. He intercedes, not on behalf of these alone, but for those also who will believe in Me through their Word. And as we read in Romans 8.33, Jesus is still doing this on our behalf. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This is a glimpse into what Jesus is presently doing. He's interceding for His own. Jesus is about to lay down His life on the cross. He's about to be buried. And as we know, He's about to rise up from the grave. He's going to appear to His disciples and then He's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to send the Holy Spirit and He's going to empower these men. But remember, these men were not some spiritual set of giants. Yes, they've been blessed by God the Father with eyes to see that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, the long-awaited One, the Christ. But they were constantly confused about the nature of Jesus' first coming. They frequently doubted. Often, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. They were little-faithed ones. They were confused and doubted. Yet, Jesus was about to hand the responsibility of the kingdom's work to this ragtag group of men. Jesus promised that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And here, Jesus prays for, for believers on down through the centuries. Obviously, all that it would take to snuff out the Gospel is for one generation to completely and utterly forsake Jesus, to leave the world without a witness. But God has never allowed that to happen. Even Elijah's day, when he felt like the one and only faithful prophet that was still in existence, God speaks to Elijah and says, I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. It might feel desperate at times. The darkness might feel oppressive. But I have my own, God says. I have a faithful remnant. The fact that these disciples were not men of notoriety reminds us that the power of the Gospel has never been in men's positions. It's not in man's power. It's not in man's eloquence. The power of the Gospel rests in God Himself. And God is most glorified by using the humblest of tools. I mean, we're impressed when there's some, you know, amazing, let's say, carpenter who's able to build a shelving unit in minutes because he's got like these high-tech, fancy tools in his garage. But isn't there something even more fascinating about the craftsman with a handsaw and chisels and sandpaper who's able to create something amazing? I think often God chooses the nobodies, weak and frail vessels, said at the end of the day, you don't glory in the tool, but you glory in the one using 
the tools. 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that He might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I might come in today saying, yeah, but I'm just a nobody. Perfect. God uses nobodies. You're exactly the person that God uses. You're the one that God delights to save. You're the one that God delights to use. Because at the end of the day, as long as you maintain that attitude that you are nobody, it will give Him all the glory. Because He is somebody. What a wonderful promise is here in Jesus' words though. Because He says, I'm not only praying for these men, but for those who will believe in Me through the Word which they will deliver. Jesus knows that this ragtag group of ordinary men will be used by God to turn the world upside down. They will be empowered and others will believe. And in this fourth and final section of John 17, part four of what we entitled kind of the Lord's Prayer through all of John 17, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, at least three highlights deserve our attention. Jesus makes three requests for the church. I want to look at each of these in turn. The first is he requests that the church enjoy an unsurpassed unity. Secondly, that the church give a remarkable testimony. And third, that the church be assembled as a glorious company. Let's first of all consider what it means that Jesus wants the church to enjoy an unsurpassed unity. It's a unity that is unbounded by time. Verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Jesus prays with all believers in mind. And this is the distinguishing feature of those who are chosen by the Father and given to the Son and born again by the Spirit. What is the distinguishing feature? They believe. They believe. They believe in Jesus in accordance with the message that is delivered by the apostles. Whether because they heard the actual apostles proclaiming the Gospel, or because they read the Gospel as it's been recorded for us in the Scripture. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what He has done accompanied by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that brings about salvation. Yes, they can only come who have been born again. Yes, they must be drawn by the Spirit. Yes, they must be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. But all those who are drawn, who are called, who are regenerated, believe. So the command of the Gospel continues to be repent and believe. And if you will repent, and if you will believe, then God has called you. For you won't do it apart from that. The fact that a man believes is evidence that God has worked on the heart and mind. He's transformed you from the inside out. And now Jesus prays that all these who would believe in Him, even beyond this present group of disciples, that they would all be one. Now, there are a few things that unite people. At times, we might feel some camaraderie within a company or within a career set. We may experience a sort of unity by enjoying a particular music or an artist. And 
You might find yourself standing next to somebody completely different than you because you enjoy the same music. You may join a club with people who enjoy a similar hobby or feel loyalty within a geographical location. You may exhibit some sort of unity in subjection to governing authorities, saying, well, we have unity as Americans because we have the same government that joins us together. Arts like dance or painting or sculpture or architecture have an uncanny ability to transcend language and time, bringing together patrons and admirers through the ages. We may enjoy fellowship over a common love of a sport or sports team. The Olympics are kind of an interesting example or glimpse into unity that is supposedly found in sports. Certainly we're familiar even with this past Winter Olympic Games held in Sochi, Russia. Even while there are various political and militaristic situations going on around the world, for the purpose of athletic competition, countries put aside some amount of differences to compete within the Games. Some might say that here we have an example in which unity spans time, because the Olympics have lasted for a long time. It spans culture. It spans languages. But you might also argue that the Olympics do not seem to unite us internationally as much as they unite us nationally as we root for those who represent our own country. In fact, you don't have to go back that many years to see that international tensions have entered into and had impact on the Olympics. In the midst of the Cold War, late in December of 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And in January of 1980, President Carter warned that in retaliation, the United States would withdraw from the Moscow Olympic Games. By February, he had told the United States Olympic Committee that he expected them to withdraw. Now, we finally did make that decision and withdrew from the Olympics. But this is a statement that was made by the Olympic Committee. Quote, if the games are to be disrupted every time there are human rights violations or aggressions in the world, the games never would have been conducted in the last 25 to 30 years. And I would say that 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 uh, amount of time is too small. <laughs> if they were never to be conducted, if there would be any sort of tension internationally, then they would never happen. Four years later, the USSR announced its intention not to participate in the Los Angeles Games, which is due to begin on July 28th of that year. Factors involved in that decision are complex, but most people believe the reason they didn't come was tit for tat. Right? You didn't come to ours, so we're not going to come to yours. The point that I make is this. Even these supposed, you know, grandiose displays of unity, right? And what, what are they doing with the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies of these things? Trying to say, you know, we're all one. We're all united. We're all agreed. Are we really all one? Are we really all united? Many man-made attempts at unity apply only to a particular group or culture, and they're fleeting, and they are temporary. You can't force, you can't manipulate, you can't bully unity, for external unity is not sufficient and it's always short-lived. But the unity that Jesus speaks to transcends language, it transcends culture, it transcends geography, occupations, hobbies, interests, economic status. Whether you are male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, this unity transcends time as well. It spans the centuries and it extends to eternity. For it's inward and spiritual in nature. It's not merely an organizational unity. It has a spiritual, inward, invisible nature. Ephesians 4. 
verses 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Hear all those? One, 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 one. Christians are commonly united in commitment for God's glory. We're commonly united in the goal of our life to bring God glory and to share the Gospel with others around us, to see the redemption of sinners, to stand for the same ultimate truth about who God is and the means by which God is saving individuals. We stand for the same standard of what it means to live a holy life. There is a true and genuine and lasting unity that's found in Christianity that is not found anywhere else. This unity is founded in God Himself. Verse 21, Even as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, they, that they also may be in Us. Then go to verse 22, The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as We are one, I in them, and You in Me. Jesus makes clear here that the unity that is here is in God the Father and God the Son. It's in accordance with the glory that the Father has bestowed upon the Son, which Jesus, in turn, has given unto the disciples. What is this glory? Well, it might have multifacets to it, but for sure it at least is this, the glory of the knowledge of the one true God and the one and only means to right relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. This picture is not some invented surface-level organizational outward unity for appearance sake. Right? I mean, that's the issue with so many of these other forms of unity. It might appear to be unity for seconds, but soon it degenerates. You might show up to the rock concert, but beat up somebody in the parking lot on your way back to the car, right? I mean, it has a superficial feeling of unity, but it's only skin deep so often. The unity that Jesus speaks to is a unity that is not merely for appearance sake, but a deep, intimate Genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A unity that is found in God. I think that clarification is so important today because we live in a day in which ecumenical movements abound. There's always a push for us to all unite and say that we all believe the same thing, right? There's a push for the church to accept Mormons as just, you know, other Christians or Jehovah's Witnesses as other Christians. There's a loss of understanding behind what is it that Roman Catholicism believes. There's a desire to find unity with Muslims. And for that matter, atheists. But any effort to replace God's truth with man-made philosophy to claim multiple contrary statements are actually all true, which is the world that we live in, right? That, oh, well, you all believe different things, but it's all, it's all true. Which they can't all be true. And meanwhile, in the same world that we live in, in which all things are supposed to be equally true and equally right, the world hates Christian certainty, right? Has no toleration for someone who says, no, there is a right and wrong. No, there is truth. And there are lies. There is something that is truly beautiful. And there are things that are ugly and perverse. You see, unity gained at the expense of truth Playing words here, is not true unity, right? If you lose truth, you don't have true unity anymore. 
The push to unite people under a banner of least common denominators is not true unity. You know, sitting down at the table with a, with a Muslim and saying, okay, well, let's see where we can find unity. You know, by the time you're done with the conversation, you've lost just about everything. What kind of unity is that? We can't enjoy true spiritual inward unity with those who are atheists or those who deny the Trinity or those who deny the deity of Jesus or those who call what is clearly defined as sin in the Bible as an alternative lifestyle. Are we called to love such people and reach out to them with the gospel? Absolutely! The point is here not to not love them. By all means, we love them with everything we've got. And because we love them, we speak truth to them. Can we accept them into our church or join our church with them? No. To do so is to lose the very thing that gives us unity and the very thing that might give them hope. Also, a third thing, this unity is described as being perfected. Look at verse 23, the second part of it. That they may be perfected in unity. That they may be perfected in unity. Why is there so much disunity in the world? Yeah, I heard it. Sin. Sin. Sin has wrecked havoc on every part of the world. It's immediate impact was seen in Adam and Eve's relationship with God. There was an instant division that was brought up as a result of their disobedience to God. But once that most vital of relationships has been affected and severed, you can be sure that our relationship with everything else within God's created world also suffers as well. So not only did Adam and Eve experience frustration in their relationship with God as a result of their sin, but they experience difficulty within the context of their marriage as well. And on and on that goes throughout the course of human history. So apart from God's grace, disunity is the norm. Any appearance of unity that we see apart from God's special grace is superficial. And whatever is seen at all is probably some sort of manifestation of God's common grace that things aren't worse than they otherwise could be. But even we who are Christians know sadly too well of the experience of disunity in the church, don't we? We ourselves, personally, none of us are exempt from this. We have had moments in which we have been mean-spirited or angry or held bitterness towards other Christians. This is due to the fact that while sin's consequence has been utterly dealt with through what Jesus has done for us, we still at present struggle against the flesh. We're in the midst of a battle. And sadly, we fall victim to sinful thoughts and passions this side of glorification. Our working relationships, our marriages, our families, our friendships encounter struggles and difficulties, this unity is lurking. And so we have to work very hard at combating attitudes and actions that foster disunity and separation and work hard to foster and nurture healing and restoration. We must beware of strife and contention and division and selfishness. And oftentimes our problem is that we attempt to apply superficial bandages to heart issues. 
We say, oh, the reason why we got into that argument is because I was, I was frustrated about blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, we don't want to deal with our own hearts. And so we're applying band-aids to our skin when we need ongoing heart diagnosis. But by God's grace, we have the resources necessary for this. Jesus speaks of our unity being perfected. This is a reminder that while the ground of our unity is already established by what God has done on our behalf by sending His Son to save us and extending His love to us, uniting people ultimately from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, unity nonetheless in the present is a work in progress. This is why Paul can exhort us in Philippians 2 too, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is he calling us to here? To unity. He's saying, work hard at this. Will there be differences that we have with fellow Christians? Absolutely. Should we still endeavor to work together for the sake of the gospel with those who might differ from us on secondary theological matters? Absolutely we should. There's much that we can do to promote unity within the body of Christ. There's much opportunity for fellowship and service in this world. And this we we ought to fight hard for and endeavor to advance God's glory in accordance with what Jesus is praying for here. I'm praying that they would be one. J.C. Ryle exhorts, let us bear much, concede much, and put up with much before we plunge into secessions and separations. What is he saying? Let's do all we can to work things out, to bear with one another in love, to forgive one another. Let's do all we can before coming to a moment of separation. Sometimes in the name of true unity, there will be no other choice. But we must work fervently to avoid such separations. This is why I think that, and there's definitely, if you read the history of all of it, it's definitely not just, you know, pure righteousness on any which side of this. But one thing that I appreciate about the Reformers is there was a real effort to try to transform, reform the church before finally they said, they, have, they will not repent. They have lost the gospel. They no longer have the truth. So we must separate. There is no true unity there. We must separate. But that came after much work and much calling for correction, much reproof, much desire that there would be continued unity. But what was there was a loss of the gospel. It was no longer the church. So they must separate. They must move away. Jesus prays that the church be united because, among other things, it will leave an impression on the world. The church's unity is intended, point number two, to give a remarkable testimony. It's intended to give a remarkable testimony. First of all, it would be proof of Jesus' mission. Verse 21, uh, third part of it here, it says, So that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, verse 23, latter part of it. So the world may know that you sent me. See, he says it twice. That the world may believe that you sent me. Next, the world might know that you have sent me. Jesus explains that it is the church's unity, which is, first and foremost, an inward reality, but it will have an impact on the world. So that inward reality must be making an outward expression, right? 
You can't merely just say, oh yeah, we're, we're united, we're in this together, and then work against each other all the time, right? You'd be like, no, that's a sham unity. You can't say you're united if all you're trying to do is to beat one another down all the time. See, that inward reality will manifest itself outwardly, and the church's united focus and purpose and mission will be taken notice of by the world. Jesus said earlier in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you love one another. Again, listen to this. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Are we to love others, non-Christians? Absolutely. But what Jesus is saying here is that our love for one another that is a unique mark of those who follow Jesus. Those who follow Jesus have a very unique mark. The evidence of them following Jesus is that they love other Christians. And as the world peers into that and gets a glimpse into that, they'll go, there's something unique. There is something different about these who have been touched by the grace of God. Jesus says that the church's distinctive unity will impact the world. The world will see this, again, ragtag group of individuals, right? Ordinary nobodies from so many different backgrounds, with so many different hobbies and interests, different languages, different cultures, coming together, worshiping God together, serving one another, agreed on the main things, all of that will serve as a testimony to a watching world. Jesus' mission will be borne witness to by the church's unity. He said, they will know that I was sent by, from God the Father by the impact made on all of you. Your unity will prove to a watching world that there was something different about Jesus. He was not some mere good teacher. He was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He is the Savior. He is Lord. He says, your unity is part of the veracity, part of the thing that shows the veracity of who I am. And not only that, look at the last part of verse 23, and loved them even as you have loved me. He says, it's not only going to be proof of my mission, it will be proof of God's love. Your relationship with one another will prove how God loves you. The sort of selfless, sacrificial, never giving up love that the church demonstrates in its unity is proof of God's love for them. Why? Because we only love because He first loved us. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ because we have experienced the unparalleled love of God. We who have been forgiven, forgive. We who have been given untold measures of grace, extend grace. We who have been recipients of mercy, grant mercy. We who have been cared for, care for others. We who have been blessed, desire to be a blessing to others. You don't just drum this up from within you, right? I mean, just think about it. You know, In the moment where you were wronged, you are hurt and you want to hold on to it with all the bitterness you can muster. What changes the heart? What transforms a man? God is the one who changes the heart. And His love is so transformative. 
the world watching this must be led to the conclusion ultimately that there has to be a reason for the change because it can't come from within us. And it's in that moment that we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. They should be seeing a difference in how we live, absolutely. But then we must be ready to point to the reason for the difference. And it's not a pointing to ourselves, but a pointing to Jesus. Now at this moment, remember, Jesus has not asked the Father to take His disciples out of the world. He says, I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world. As a matter of fact, I'm sending them into the world. He says, Father, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. To take the church immediately out of the world is to leave the world without a witness to Jesus. The only means by which the world can be reconciled to God. But this does not mean that Jesus will never take his own home to be with him. So Jesus ends this prayer with an expression of longing, a deep yearning, a desire that all those given to him by the Father will be with him. It's the most awesome, fitting conclusion to this prayer. Jesus wills the church, point number three, to assemble as a glorious company. He wills, he desires, he longs that the church be assembled into a glorious company. First of all, it's going to be a glorious homecoming. Verse 24, Father, I desire, I long, I yearn that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus concludes his prayer with the most amazing words. He expresses that he longs that the church be gathered together to him to see his glory. He already prayed in verse 5 of John 17. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What does that acclaim to? Claim to the pre-existence of Jesus, right? That He has always been. He says, I ask that you bring me back to you and bestow upon me the glory that I've had with you from eternity. This is no mere man. Jesus had already displayed His glory. It was veiled in the Incarnation, but there was a, a little bit of a greater glimpse given of this up in the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember? Just a few of the disciples, just three of them were escorted up to this place and Jesus is arrayed in a fuller way in His glory. And I wonder if John, John being one of the people that was there, I wonder when he says in John 1.14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the One who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Certainly, again, there could be many references. In what sense does He mean we've seen His glory? Some might argue that just... God in the flesh is glorious in and of itself. Some would argue that maybe perhaps the cross and or connected with the resurrection, that's the glory that John is speaking to. I wonder if John is speaking to the transfiguration. We beheld his glory. He was one of the three that were allowed that glimpse. Here is the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Jesus asked his father, bring me back to the back to you. Array me with all the glory that I've had from before the foundation of the world. And now he prays. He says, I yearn that all those whom you've given to me would be brought to me and that they would behold my glory. 
Jesus promised that there will be this grand, marvelous reunion of all those who are His. In John 14, which we had read this morning, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I love that little line. (laughs) It wasn't going to be like this. I would have let you know. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll receive it in myself that where I am, you may be also. This is what's going to happen. And now in his prayer, the end of his prayer, he says, Father, I long for that day. I long for that day. There is something about coming home, isn't there? I mean, I love going on vacation whenever that will happen. But there's something about coming home. I'm certain all of us have had smaller versions of that feeling. Certainly, home is not necessarily a particular geographical location. Although, Texas feels more like home when the weather is like this outside. I remember why I like living in Texas. But being reunited together with family and friends. You know, it's more about the people that were around that makes something feel like home, right? That's why you can move locations. And it's like, you know, whether we're here or somewhere else, if you guys are there... Oh, this is family, right? Should a family member or friend go away for an extended period of time when they return home, it makes their presence all the more sweet as the time which they were away causes you to appreciate their presence sometimes all the more. Businessmen returning from trips around the world, soldiers coming home from war, missionaries returning on furlough. Those are joyful moments. But none of those moments are worthy to be compared with our great homecoming. A Christian's home is ultimately not here. Perhaps we forget this. Sometimes in the midst of life, we forget that this is not our home. But we must not forget that we're merely pilgrims here. It's sad when we don't spend much time thinking about where we're headed. MacArthur says rightly, when the church loses its focus on heaven, it becomes self-indulgent and self-centered, materialistic and worldly spiritually weak and lethargic. The pleasures and comforts of this present world consume too much of its time and energy. Believers forget that this world is not their true home, that they are aliens and strangers, 1 Peter 2.11. But there's coming a day in which Jesus' prayer will be answered. He's going to bring all of His own home and they will enjoy Him forever. Christians are absolutely sure that they will be glorified. I love the golden chain of salvation sometimes referred to in Romans 8, 29, and 30. Because after describing that those who be predestined, he also called, those who be called, he also justified, those who be justified, he also glorified. Wait a second here. <laughs> All these other verbs are things that have already happened. But he speaks about glorification as if it's already happened. So I've called that the prophetic perfect. It's so sure they can be spoken of as if it's already happened. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And oh, what a day that will be in the glorified state. No more sin, my dear friends. No more disunity. Perfect fellowship. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we're children of God has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we'll be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. John Calvin said it this way, Our happiness lies in having the image of God restored and formed anew in us. 
which was defaced by sin. All those in Christ will be gathered together with all the Christians throughout the ages and spend eternity in the new heavens and new earth, living in God's place, underneath God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And while there's much we could say about heaven, because the Bible says a whole lot about heaven, certainly the, the truest and grandest and most awesome pleasure of the place is that's where the Lord is. Oh, what it will be to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, 6. Psalm 16:11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Philippians 1.23, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart to be with Christ. For that is very much better. Revelation 21, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have all passed away. He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 to comfort one another with words concerning our future. Comfort one another with these words. We have a glorious homecoming. And those who are the Lord's are known and loved. Known and loved. Look at verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, although the world has not known You, yet I have known You. And these have known that You sent Me. And I have made Your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which You love Me may be in them and I in them. Again, Jesus perfectly followed His Father's will in every detail. He said and did only what the Father told Him to. He modeled perfect obedience and He fulfilled all righteousness. He revealed the Father perfectly, being Himself God in the flesh. And He would not cease to make the Father known. And we may argue that the fullest revelation is just about to unfold. When Jesus goes to the cross and thereby demonstrates both the perfect righteousness of God as well as God's marvelous grace and love. Because He bears the full wrath of God's uh, full fury of God's wrath against sin by dying in the place of wretched sinners. And He extends forgiveness to those who believe in Him by paying their debt in full. Jesus then rose again from the dead. And He gave final words to His disciples before He ascended to heaven. And He sent the Holy Spirit to them as the Spirit of truth who would continue to remind them of what Jesus had said and train them and help them understand and reveal further the, the name of God, His character, His nature, His attributes, His actions. Ultimately, Jesus fulfilled His mission to teach sinners what they deserved because of who God is, what was required for their salvation because of who God is, and what length God would go to save them because of who God is. You see, as our righteous Father, as Jesus refers to Him here, O righteous Father, verse 25, O righteous Father, He could not overlook sin but also, as our Father, He would not leave all sinners in their miserable state, but from sheer mercy and grace would save a people for His own possession to lavish His love upon. Giving them the privilege 
to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But our experience of God's love is solely ours because we're found in Christ. Should you reject Jesus, then a certain and fearful expectation of judgment awaits you. It's appointed for man to die once, and after this, the judgment. So the message of the Scriptures as it relates to the Gospel, the call of the Gospel is repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And do so while it's still called today because you don't have any guarantee that you'll have any more moments than the one that you have right now. Matthew Henry said, There is nothing in us to recommend us to God's favor, but all of our influence in Him and all of our interaction with Him is the result of of Christ's influence and interaction. We are unworthy, but He is worthy. In conclusion, A.W. Paint does an excellent job of summing up at least what are seven requests from Jesus, and three of them we've looked at here today, and the additional four that he just mentioned. I just want to mention these quickly. I think it's a good summary of John 17 and the things that Jesus prays for regarding believers through the centuries. First of all, Preservation, number one, preservation. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. So he says, keep them, hold them, keep them safe. Two, jubilation, verse 13, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Praise for our joy. Thirdly, emancipation, for freedom. Verse 15, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Keep them safe. From his clutches. Four, sanctification. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Fifthly, unification. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Sixthly, association. Verse 24, Jesus, I desire that they also, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. And lastly, gratification, or we might say glorification. Verse 24, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. I'll leave you with this thought. If you're a Christian, take this in. Here in John 17, Jesus is praying for you. And He's praying for you in relationship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And He longs that we be united. And that that unity be an example, a distinctive mark in this world, that people would look in and see the reality that Jesus was who He said He was and that these people are distinctively loved by God. And what a joy it is to know that Jesus continues to pray for us in this fashion. Hebrews 7.25 He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God since He always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the Marvelous words of our Lord and Savior Jesus. To think that He was on that occasion praying for us and that He continues to pray for us. It's so humbling. We know we are worthless, but He is worthy. Because of what He has done on behalf of wretched sinners, there is granted relationship with You. I pray, Lord, that we would be very serious about living within the unity that You have already established. 
Lord, there are times where we need to sit down with a brother or sister and share some kind of hard words because we need to work through an issue because we don't want to just have a surface-level relationship with one another. Help us to speak words that are true and speak words in love. Help us, if we're the one being confronted in a matter like that, that we be receptive and not defensive. Help us to view it as as a gift from You. Lord, there are other times where we need to just realize that we get irked by things that we should just let go. Help us to bear with one another. To bear with one another in love. To not recall offenses, but to forgive them and bury them. Lord, I I pray that we, we do long for the same thing, Jesus, You prayed for, for unity within Your church across the ages, across boundaries of countries and cultural groups. And we, we pray for that ongoing work that You are doing. And we simultaneously pray that we would be engaged in that work. And on this side of glory, where we still struggle with the flesh, that You would help us to endeavor, by Your grace, to work fervently towards unity among ourselves. Lord, I thank You for the sweet fellowship that is enjoyed in this church. But may we never take that for granted. May we be very quick to make sure that we make things right with one another should there ever be occasions that arise where that happens. Remind us that we are merely sinners saved by grace. And You have extended forgiveness to us, so how can we not forgive one another? Lord, may You use the testimony of this church corporately, not only our individual testimony, but our corporate testimony to impact this community. For Your glorious kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen.